an OC alum, actually a fellow named Randy Moon, who is the minister. I don't know if he's still a minister, but he was the one that came in, established the Boston Church in Oklahoma City area. And uh, the Boston Church is in the process of changing their name, changing their corporate name to the International Churches of Christ. Many years ago, in a discussion with uh, some friends of mine about the Boston movement, I said, uh, we, talk, we said that, that the day that they could figure out how to change their name, that would be the day that they would totally um, divide themselves from our fellowship. And so the official name is the International Churches of Christ. Now the Boston Church, and if some of you might be saying, what is he talking about? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give, most of you probably know. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, Boston Church of Christ um, has been uh, described as a classic Christian aberration. Remember I said there were different kinds of cults? And I said one of the kind of cults is Christian aberration. All right? A kind of an offshoot of Christianity. Using Christianity but really being a cult. Well the Boston movement or the Boston church has been described as a classic Christian aberration or cult by newspapers in Dallas and elsewhere in the country and is listed as a bona fide cult by religious educators even outside of our brotherhood. When people are studying cults uh, in religious education classes at the university level and they go through various cults, you know, uh, the Boston movement is a cult that is, uh, or excuse me, the Boston movement is a group studied as a bona fide cult by religious teachers in denominational colleges and schools because it has all the earmarks of a cult. And so tonight I want to uh, talk to you and study uh, with you uh, the uh, Boston the Boston movement. Boston movement. First of all, I want to give you a little history of this movement. Now this overhead here may not, may not be as clear as it needs to be for people in the back. This is not one of these great overheads that uh, Wilma has been making. If you've noticed the last couple of weeks, the overheads are crisp and you can see them right from the back row. It's because Wilma has been making these things on her new computer. She's getting to be a real computer whiz out there. She gets she gets to the office at six a.m. to try to figure out figure it out, and she's she's doing no extra pay. Just you know, we get her to play with the computer. But uh, this this little design here, if those of you in the back can't see, uh, is it's just a tree, right? It's just going to design of a tree with roots here, and really this explains the history of the what's called the modern discipleship. Um, modern discipleship movement. It's called. It's been called a lot of names. Originally, it was called the Multiplying Ministries, and then it was called the Hierarchical Discipleship Movement, and eventually it was just called. It was also called the Crossroads Movement. I mean, way back in the in the eighties, was called the Crossroads Movement, and eventually we finally it's been called the Boston Movement. There's a reason for that. And I'll explain that in a in a minute. This movement um, has is not original to the Church of Christ. Some people are saying, we started this movement. But this is, this is an old movement that did not begin in the Churches of Christ. It has its roots in many different places. For example, you can't see. But the writings of many different people have come together to form this movement. A fellow named Juan Carlos Ortiz, uh, uh, originally in the 70s, wrote a book on discipleship. And a lot of thoughts, about, a lot of thoughts were taken from his books uh, the Maranatha Ministries, uh, which was a kind of a militant uh, campus uh, ministry group, 
A lot of their ideas went into forming the modern discipleship movement in the churches of Christ. The writings of Watchman Nee. I've read a lot of his books, and uh, if you've read some of his books, especially The Normal Christian Church or The Normal Christian Life, he talks a lot about this discipleship and the authority uh, in the in the uh, Christian church. Groups like the Navigators and Campus Crusade for Christ in the in the 80s used the systematic discipling, systematic authority, if you wish, to gain disciples. One book that was especially important to the Boston movement uh, is a book by Ronald Coleman, which is entitled The Master Plan of Evangelism, where he talks about this business of prayer partners and, and uh, 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 discipleship and so on and so forth. And there are, of course, the history in the Roman Catholic Church where there was a lot of one-on-one discipling uh, uh, spiritual directors, uh, and I'm familiar with that, having grown up in that system. Well, you take all of these ideas that coalesced together in the 70s, and they begin to form in our brotherhood what is called the discipleship movement. Now, these ideas here, uh, which are called the discipleship movement, have really been rejected by charismatics uh, in, in, in denominations. We're, we we overtook, we inherited some old ideas from denominationalism, ideas that they had spit out long ago because it had caused them so many problems. And we incorporated them into the church. And we have paid the price for having taken those ideas into the church. And uh, again, this is what this lesson is all about. Um, the beginning of the movement within the church dates back to the early or mid-70s in Gainesville, Florida, at a church ca- uh, called the Gainesville Church of Christ, where a preacher named Chuck Lucas was training young ministers to go on campuses, on college campuses, to try to recruit, try to evangelize. Good idea. I mean, hey, uh, the college campuses are the place to go and talk to people about Jesus Christ. Excuse me. And the Crossroads Church was training them in a lot of techniques that were found in these books. Okay? And we'll talk about those techniques also in a minute. In 1977, the Memorial Church of Christ in in Houston, Texas, was supporting two of these young ministers. But they terminated their support of them because they were beginning to use unbiblical methods. In other words, they were using methods found in Coleman's master plan of evangelism on campus. They were using unbiblical ways to evangelize and to control disciples. And for that reason, they terminated their support. These two young ministers, their names were, one of them was Roger Lamb, and the other one was Kip McKean. Kip McKean in 1979 uh, was uh, being supported by the Crossroads Church. Eventually, it's a long story, but eventually he became the evangelist for the Boston Church of Christ. And now this church in Boston is the main spokesman for this entire movement. Chuck Lucas, if you're ever wondering if any of you know about this, Chuck Lucas is no longer at the Crossroads Church, no longer involved in multiplying ministries. And as an interesting sidelight, the Crossroads Church that originally started all this business has since repented of what it has done and publicly has come to the mainline Church of Christ to ask to be reinstated in fellowship. They have rejected all of these ideas that originally came. My wife and I 
uh, as a sidelight, saw Chuck Lucas when we were just beginning in the ministry. We went to Colorado, not knowing anything about the discipleship movement. Someone had invited us to go there, and we went there, and I saw him preach for one evening, and a mesmerizing speaker, I mean, just, you know, an incredible speaker, but I had never been so frightened in the church in my whole life. That night, after hearing him speak, went back to our room, and I remember us kneeling down in our room and praying, oh dear God, where, what have we stumbled into? Where are we? You know, we didn't even know where we were. Uh, very, very dangerous uh, type of uh, thinking that was going on. The Boston Movement is a worldwide movement which operates on purpose, outside of the fellowship and influence of our brotherhood. Don't be so naive, brothers and sisters. They operate outside of our fellowship. They use our name, but they operate outside of our fellowship on purpose. It was, and I believe still is, the fastest growing element within what we refer to as the Churches of Christ. Uh, they, their plan, their strategy was to be the Church of Christ by the year 2000. In other words, by the year 2000, when somebody said the Church of Christ, their plan was they were referring to them and not us. Of course, since then, they've changed and revised their plan and have called themselves the International Church of Christ. The Boston Church, I don't know about this night, but up till maybe a year ago, year and a half ago, the fastest growing congregation in the USA, London, Church of Christ, or, you know, the Boston Church of Christ in London was the fastest growing congregation outside the United States of America. Every congregation is now or will feel the influence of this movement from one time to another. This movement and its practices were the main issue in our brotherhood in the 80s. I mean, that's what we talked about in the 80s. And they continue to alienate many people as we go uh, on into the 90s. It has been profiled as a cult on the program 2020. It's been on, profiled as a cult on the program Inside Edition. I didn't see the 2020, but I caught the Inside Edition one. And I mean, there they were talking to people that I knew and saw and so on and so forth. And all of the people who had been injured and damaged by this group. And there was uh, some uh, Jim Baird, not Jim Baird from uh, Al Baird, excuse me. Al Baird, one of the elders from Boston, just sitting there as calm as you please, answering all these accusations and so on and so forth uh, to the interviewers on on television. Very dangerous, uh, very dangerous group. Well, I want to cut to the chase here and, and, and answer one question that everybody asks all the time. What's wrong with it? That's always the big thing. You know, what's, what's wrong with this thing? You know, if we were talking about adultery, you know, we could go straight to the Bible. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's simple. What's wrong with it? The Bible said, don't do that. But the Boston movement, it's not that clear. What's wrong with it? Well, uh, you know, you can't quite put your finger on it. But there are some definite things that are wrong with this movie. See, on television, they don't talk about what's wrong with it. They're just interested in, you know, the human lives that have been damaged because of it. Makes a good story. You know, it's about cults. But from a biblical perspective, what is wrong with these, with this group? Well, three, three things wrong with it. Okay. Number one, the organization is not biblical. The organization of the Boston Churches of Christ is not biblical. I'll show you how they're organized. They have, first of all, what's called a mother church in Boston. Mother church is the church from which everything comes. 
you need approval from the Boston church in order to be an evangelist. We knew people in Montreal who were working and supported by churches in Texas and so on and so forth, and they were working as missionaries in Montreal, who decided that they wanted to go join the Boston movement. Here is a guy who had been a missionary for 15 years, whose father was a preacher, who grew up as a Christian, missionary for 15 years, had planted churches, baptized people, trained other evangelists, and had sent them out into the field, Okay, an experienced missionary, who decides all of a sudden, for what reason, I don't know, to go to Boston, or to go work for a Boston church in Toronto, Ontario. And this guy had to go to Boston and be approved by the people in Boston to go work in Toronto. <coughs> he needed the stamp of approval. He even needed to be rebaptized. And his wife, and his children, all over again. They would not give the stamp of approval till he went through the entire system. And so the mother church in Boston is the church from which all the authority as far as the workers are concerned comes from. Then there's a thing called pillar churches. The Boston church in Boston, Massachusetts is a pillar church, but it's a pillar church with a significant role. There are other pillar churches which are congregations who are responsible for sending teams, for sending church planters to specific countries. These pillar churches can take talent from different places and send them to wherever they want to. For example, the San Francisco Church of Christ is responsible for California and for Asia and so on and so forth. And different key churches are responsible for different areas. You have capital city churches which are down in the notch of influence in this organization. They're national churches. For example, the church in Oklahoma City is a capital city church. It doesn't have the prestige, the power, or the uh, resources of the pillar churches, uh, and certainly not of the Boston church. It's a capital city church. It's in charge of the region here in Oklahoma City. Then you have small city churches. Those are kind of countryside churches. And then house churches, what they call house churches. Each congregation divides up uh, into territories and zones and each zone has a leader, and within each zone there are house churches, and each house church has a leader. House churches uh, are, as well as their local and zone leaders, overseen by the main congregation. In other words, this capital city church uh, controls these small city churches and controls these house churches over here. Now, the main problem with, I mean, that's a wonder of organization. That's terrific if you're selling widgets. You know, if you're distributing t-shirts or brooms or cars, you know, you get the, you get the, the head, the, the plant where you make all the production, quality control, and you have, you know, zones, and you've got regional managers, and then local supervisors, and then department managers, and salesmen on the road. It's wonderful if you're, like I said, you're selling widgets. But this is the body of the Lord. The New Testament has not divided the church up geographically. And so the main problem with this system here of organization is that one church can and does control other churches. This is exactly the Roman Catholic system, to name one. I mean, I couldn't talk about Presbyterians or whatever, but I, as being a former Catholic, I understand about Roman Catholicism. This is exactly the system within Roman Catholicism. 
you know, where you have parishes and dioceses and so on and so forth. The problem is that this system of church organization has not been taught in the scriptures. The New Testament pattern, uh, there is no, excuse me, there's no pattern in the New Testament for this hierarchical system. This pyramidic system does not exist in the New Testament. History shows that each church in apostolic times uh, was independent. Uh, Each congregation uh, was admonished to submit to the scriptures, not to one person. In Hebrews, we're admonished to submit to those who are over us in the Lord. Yes, to those, plural, who are over us in the Lord. And in Acts chapter 20, we find out that those who are over us in the Lord are the elders. And that each congregation had its own elders. But nowhere in the New Testament do you see that one elder over here in Ephesus is uh, responsible for a church over here in uh, Alexandria or in uh, Thessalonica. Okay? And so, what's wrong with Boston? Well, the first thing is that its organization is not biblical. Secondly, its view of authority is not biblical either. Because it has authority levels. You see, the basis of the entire movement is the concept that Jesus taught us that our job as Christians was to disciple other Christians in exactly the same way that he discipled the apostles. See, that's the Ronald Coleman's book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. That's the thesis. The thesis is that Jesus discipled the 12 apostles in a certain way. And so therefore, we have to perpetuate that system in every generation. And there's a problem with that. This concept permits the introduction of the idea that one person, one Christian, can and should have authority over another Christian in order to train him in Christ, just like Jesus had authority over the apostles. In the Boston mold, this has brought forth various levels of authority among individuals. For example, you have... I mean, I didn't, I'm not making this stuff up here. I mean, you know, I'm not, I didn't create this. This is from their own literature. Okay? You have uh, the lead evangelist. The lead evangelist is the boss. Okay? In the church. In the Boston church, Kip McKean, who's an evangelist, has a lot more authority than Al Baird. Al Baird, who's one of the elders, you have a congregation that has 5,000 people Two elders. Two elders. 5,000 people. And Kip McKean has much more authority over the congregation than any one of these elders. The elders go on the talk shows. They do do the talk shows. You have a a co-evangelist. You have interns, zone leaders. Now, I, I listed them like this, okay? Because this is the level. This is how you work your way up. In the Boston movement, when I would talk to some of my friends who were in the Boston movement, they were always talking about moving on up, you know, moving up the ladder. And so there was always a lot of, you know, uh, flattery going on. If you could get, if your, if your buddy was the co-evangelist, you had the opportunity to intern with the co-evangelist, which put you close to the lead evangelist. And if you were in a zone church, you could work your way up to a capital city church. And if you got a shot at being in one of the pillar churches, and then if you could ever get to Mecca 
which was the one of the Boston, you know, it was like corporate climbing. I mean, I've worked for big companies. I've worked for Crystal Myers and Smith and Nephew. I've worked for big companies, and I've seen, you know, the action that goes on with people trying to maneuver their way up the ladder. That's exactly what happens here. House church leaders are higher than counselors, women's counselors. A discipler is the lowest form. It's not even. It's like a lower mid management. You, you're in charge of one person only, and then the lowly disciple is in charge of nobody. And the way you work up is you're a disciple, and then you work your way up to be a discipler. In other words, you disciple somebody else. And if you do a good job, you're a counselor, you've got several people. Then you're a, a house church leader, work your way up to zone, interning with one of the capital city churches. Whoa, you become the lead evangelist in a capital city church, and then maybe an intern with a pillar church, and, then, and so on and so forth. Make more money, more prestige, more power. Again, if we're selling widgets, that's great. But the New Testament sees no distinction in the authority between any minister in the church. Christ is the only head in the church. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. He is the head of the body. There's only one recognized authority in the church. And all Christians must submit one to another. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21. Submit ye one to another. When it comes to submission. And the church must follow the leadership of the elders who have the role of leadership in each local church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. You see, Jesus' training of the apostles is not the pattern for church life. And why is that? Well, their mission was unique. They were the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, empowered miraculously to make that witness, to empower others to do miracles. They had a very specific task. Ours is not the same task with the same tools. And I ask you another question. If we're going to follow this pattern of Jesus and his disciples, who's going to be Jesus? You know, who's going to be Jesus? So, there is no authority in the Bible that is given to one individual over another individual. We're to submit one to another. We're to love each other, bear each other's burdens, support each other, encourage each other. And all of us as a corporate group are to submit to our elders who are leading us and pastoring us for our good, for uh, the purpose of uh, presenting us fully mature in Christ Jesus. So that if today the Lord is to come tonight, the elders can stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I, we bring you the flock over which you have given us responsibility. That's the only authority in the church. And as, as we know, not one elder, but a group of elders corporately together lead in love and in humility. Not lording it over us, but encouraging us from the word and from their personal life Example, that kind of leadership is biblical. And so what's wrong with the Boston movement? Their view of authority is not a biblical view. Someone says, the Boston church, when they recruit you, they begin with the power of love. And eventually they end with the love of power. They get you by loving you at the beginning, but the purpose of the love is to gain power over you. Remember what I said last weekend? 
What is the goal of all cults? Control. To control you. And when I watched the TV programs and I saw how they were deprogramming people out, it was always the same story. They were trying to control where you worked, what you said, who you married, what you did, and so on and so forth. Yes, certainly we're all working so that our mind is controlled by the words of Christ. Yes, I want my heart and my mind to be in line with the will of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. I want my heart to be pure. I want my mind to be set on things which are above. Absolutely. But I don't want you to control my mind, and I certainly don't want to control your mind. I want to direct you to the mind of Christ. Not to the mind of Michael Maslongo, because Michael Maslongo is a sinner. Thirdly, the view of Christian relationship is also unbiblical. Oh, I want to make one other thing here. What time? Do we have time? Yeah, I have five minutes. Here. One other point. Well, I have five minutes till 22. <laughs> one other point I want to make. No evangelist is accepted as I said, unless he is approved by Boston and trained within the system, within the Boston system. That's another authoritative thing that we don't see in the New Testament. The New Testament teaches that the knowledge of the Word is what prepares a man for the ministry of the Word. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says, From an early age you have known the holy writings. The knowledge of the Word is the first criteria of being a minister of the word. And along with purity of life, it is the only criteria to judge the evangelist's right to preach. If you have, if your doctrine is pure, and if your life is pure, then you have a right to stand and encourage the brethren uh, in the word. That's what the Bible asks of those who minister the word. A purity of heart and purity of doctrine. And hopefully the Lord will provide the ability to speak clearly and to communicate effectively his word. First Timothy chapter 4 verse 12 and verse 14 to 16. Timothy and Titus were never on different levels of authority. Timothy was never over Titus and Titus was never over, over, over Timothy. Both of them were encouraged by Paul to do the same thing and to be the same kinds of people. And so I want to remind you of that in the church... It is the purity of doctrine and the purity of heart that qualifies a man to minister the word. Okay, third thing. The view of Christian relationships is also un unbiblical. Now, the Boston movement always sees people in positions of in-between. One person is always being discipled. And somebody is always discipling somebody else. There is also always a master-pupil type of relationship. One must be discipled by somebody else. One must confess sin to somebody else. One must read or have quiet time supervised by someone else. The New Testament teaches that a Christian is a, uh, is a kingly priest. First Peter, <clears throat> excuse me. First Peter chapter, um, chapter 2 verse 9. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's who you are as a Christian. You are a priest. 
and a king, a royal priest before God. And no one is master over you except Christ in an individual sense and the elders in a congregational sense. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the writer refers to elders. Again, those who are over us in the Lord. Also, they see each person being individually overseen by another person and a small group overseen by home church leaders all the way to the top. And eventually the evangelist uh, is the head of the church. The New Testament teaches us that we work out our salvation as individuals. I am not responsible for your salvation. You are responsible for your salvation. Now God provides to the church the word, right? He provides to the church the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2 verse 38. He provides for the church shepherds. He provides for the church evangelists and teachers, right? God gives all those things to you to help you work out your salvation in fear and trembling. But it's your salvation. You have to work out. I'm not responsible for your, I'm responsible for my salvation. And as a preacher, part of my salvation is to keep my life pure and my doctrine pure. Okay? And part of your salvation is, well, whatever part of your salvation is. But I'm not in charge of your salvation. I minister to it, but I'm not responsible for it. In the Boston view of things, they are responsible for your salvation in the end. Now there's some special terms. And so the view of authority, my point is the view of authority is not biblical. And the view of Christian relationships is unbiblical. Because there's always you know, a high and a low. And in the church, that's not how it works. All right, some special terms that you need to know. House churches. Those are groups who meet in a home that is overseen by a leader. And what it does is it feeds a local church. Now, is a house church a biblical idea? Sure it is. It's a biblical idea for Christians to share their lives for mutual edification and do so in each other's homes. Acts chapter 2 verse 46, they met in each other's homes. And in Romans chapter 16, Paul talks about the churches that met in homes. But it is wrong, it is unbiblical when this is formed into a unit overseen by one person. And this unit overseen by another group. If a church meets in a home, then it is an autonomous and independent congregation, not to be ruled by a zone leader or anybody else. If you have a church in your home, well, then you should have some elders overseeing that church. And I figure by the time you get elders, there'll be enough people there that you can move out of your living room and rent yourself, uh, you know, second story somewhere. Another term is discipleship. For the Boston movement, the, the process of discipleship is where one person is molding another person to be a mature Christian. Again, that's a biblical idea. It's biblical to go out and to make other disciples of Christ through preaching and baptizing and teaching. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. But it is unbiblical to say that one system for doing it is ordained of God to the exclusion of all else. 
you know, those people who want to run buses, if they said all of a sudden, if you don't have a bus program, boy, your church is not the true church. Well, that's wrong. That's not okay. Every congregation is responsible to preach and to baptize and to teach and to do it with the tools and methods best suited for their circumstances. Paul preached in synagogues to try to reach those who did not know about Christ. How much chance would we have nowadays to get into a synagogue to preach Christ? Well, we could do it, but how much chance could we do it without getting shot? In those days, you would go to the market and you would begin to preach in the market. And I remember some of these people that I met in, you know, in Toronto saying, well, that's the New Testament way to do it. We've got to go out and do it in the market. And they would go out to shopping centers and preach. The problem is, in those days, that was accepted culturally. To go out and to proclaim whatever philosophy or teaching you had in the marketplace was the way you did it. And people would stop and listen and go, yeah, maybe, yes, no, you know. Today, if you go to the market and do that, what do they think? They think you're a nut. Right? Because that's not the cultural way. Today, if you want to go to the public market, you go on TV or you go on radio. Or you go in the newspaper, right? You have a rally or whatever, a gospel meeting. You see, you, those things are adapted culturally. Prayer partners or discipleship partners. This is the basis upon which the entire movement is built. It is the basic unit of measurement. The basic unit of relationship with which the whole movement is based. If you took away this thing here, it would just fall apart. The point where one disciple is placed over another in order to begin discipling him or her. And it works. I mean, imagine if, if the elder sat down and said, okay, you're in charge of him, 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 da, 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 da. And the people who are in charge are really in charge of your entire life. Would we have control? You bet we would have control. You know, this morning, I preached a sermon about church attendance. And I encouraged and exhorted you, even kind of, you know, the, the sword was a little sharp, you know, it cuts you a little bit and gets you to pay attention and, and, and be more mindful about church attendance. And, and, and some listened and some didn't. Some were not here, obviously. Some said, yeah, I believe I'll start doing that. And that's good. But if we had this system here, your prayer partners be on you this afternoon and they'd be dragging you here and they'd make you feel guilty. Well, you know, would we get results? Sure, we would get results. But what would we sacrifice? We sacrifice freedom. See, you're free. You are free to accept the word or to reject the word. I don't, I for one am not ready to give up my freedom. It's right for us to call all men to become disciples of Jesus and help them find out for themselves through study and prayer and teaching and guidance how they best can serve the Lord. It is wrong when one is discipled into a system where discipling is the end, not the means. Now the Boston movement is based on a man-made system of ideas and it makes its teachings on uh, uh, organization and authority and relationship within the body incorrect. That's the problem. Someone says, what's wrong with the Boston movement? They're not organized properly. They abuse authority. That's what's wrong with it. Uh, their concept of how we relate to each other is wrong. The model in the Bible is we're a body. We're a family. We're not a management system where I'm in charge of you and you're in charge of him. That's wrong. That's a worldly model. 
Now, why are we frozen into inaction? Why are we seen helpless in front of this? I'll tell you why. Because the results are so spectacular. That's why. This is the pragmatic snare that says the end justifies the means. The movement as a whole has not been marked out or condemned as dangerous and destructive because in North America we are trained to measure success by size and results and not necessarily truth. You know, we see, man, it baptized 500 people. They must be right. We must be wrong. Because we, 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 we measure results. If they get results, they must be right. In a debate that I've had with some people, I say, oh yeah, results. Hey, there's two billion communists in China. Does that mean they're right? There's 700 million Roman Catholic people in this world. Does that mean their doctrine is right and ours is wrong? Are we, you want to count numbers? I'll give you numbers. I'll give you plenty of numbers. If that's the way you're going to measure. You see, we hate to argue with size, especially when we haven't matched it. <laughs> they baptized 500, we baptized 12. You know, it's kind of tough to argue. I'll tell you what they are. They are the new legalists that promote submission of the human spirit to mortal men in the name of discipleship to Christ. That's who they are. I'm not afraid to say it. They're legalists. They just want to get you in prison. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. That's what Paul said in Galatians 5 verse 1. I, for one, am not ready to put on a yoke of slavery. I was a religious slave for most of my life. And brothers and sisters, I'm not going back. I'm free in Christ. I'm not free to be lazy. I'm not free to be worldly. I'm not free to abandon Christ. I'm not free to give in to my flesh. I'm not free for those things. But I am free from any man lording anything over me in Christ. I'm free from that. Because I have this. The key to the kingdom. I have it. And I'm free. I'm not going to let anybody put me back into a spiritual prison. Okay. Last thing, then we're through. How to Boston proof your church. You might think, oh, we're in Choctaw, no danger. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Those of you who have children going to college, <laughs> they're the targets. Those of you who are dissatisfied and maybe wish the church would grow a little faster and it's not, you're a target. Those of you who are lonely and alienated, you're a target. How to Boston proof your church. First of all, make no apologies in condemning its practices. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 9. You know, one of the early mistakes was that the church tried to reconcile differences and refused to accept that this group was ruthless and deceitful in its practices. One of the big mistakes we made back in the late 80s was we refused to accept that these people did not play fair. They lied. They didn't tell the truth. I remember in Canada pleading with the publisher of a, a national newspaper, a Christian newspaper, to point out that these people were going into churches and dividing churches and stealing away people and controlling them and destroying lives. Oh, no, 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 he said. You know, we've, we've got to try to reconcile. And my question was, why are you trying to reconcile? They're not trying to reconcile. 
Like all cults, it believes that the end justifies the means. In Galatians chapter 1, excuse me, verses 6 to 9, Paul says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. He said, even if an angel or an apostle gives you a different gospel, let him be accursed. We need to mark them and turn away from their group as one that is hurting the cause of Christ and one that has caused great division in the church. I've boiled this lesson I mean, I do three lessons on this thing. I've boiled it down to one for tonight. That's why we're going a little long. I've tried to pack it all into one lesson. I could give you lists of churches that have been divided by this group on purpose. On purpose. They don't care. Secondly, keep evangelism as the main focus of the church. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. The only reason that this movement ever got started was because there had been a letdown in evangelistic zeal in the church and they filled the void with their twisted version of the Great Commission. Leaders need to renew their commitment to making evangelism the foundational ministry upon which the other works of the church are based in order to keep a proper spiritual tension. What we're about is not just coming to church listening to me preach. What we're about is not just having our family days or having our, you know, VBS. Those are all good things. What we're about is using all of this to reach out to others to share Christ with them. That's what we're about. What Boston did was it gave us a wake-up call for the last decade. To demonstrate that when you go out and preach even a twisted version of the gospel, people will respond. So if you want to Boston-proof the Choctaw Church of Christ, let's keep evangelism as our main focus in everything that we do. And I can tell you that the elders and I are working on keeping evangelism as the main focus. And as the weeks and months go by, you'll see the plans that we have to do that. And then finally, create an environment of mutual dependence and communication. Cults thrive on people who are related or excuse me, who are isolated and frustrated, needing something to belong to and someone to understand them. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the writer describes a fellowship of believers who were codependent, who were open and communicative towards God and each other. They talked to each other. An open and warm and accepting, caring, interested, supportive fellowship is the best deterrent to the wolves coming in and stealing the unsuspecting Remember this morning, those of you who were here, I said, I don't come to church because I'm hurting. That person who's hurting is a prime target for a cult. Because they'll sit and they'll listen. They'll listen to you and get your attention. In the end, this movement, like all cults, will collapse upon itself. It will. It'll, it'll grow and grow and grow and grow. And already the signs are there. In the last uh, six months... Well, actually, in the last year, the Boston Church no longer publishes its list of baptisms. They used to do that all the time. 
thousand, two thousand baptisms. They don't do that anymore. You know why? Because now they lose one out of two. For every one, for every two they baptize, they lose one. So if they baptize a thousand, they lose five hundred. Who leaves? Because of this kind of abuse, because of the negative publicity that they have received, because people are, are warned. And eventually this system, like all of these systems, will collapse in upon itself. It will not be able to support itself. But in the meantime, an entire generation of contacts and young people have been destroyed. So we need to be careful to Boston-proof this congregation so that we don't lose any of our young people or any others who are disenfranchised or discouraged, but that we need to encourage each other. Well, that's the end of the series. It was kind of a short one. We wanted to compact everything into two series to enable you to have some understanding about cults and especially about the Boston movement. And if somebody asks you, you know, what's this Boston movement? Don't be afraid to say, it's a cult. It's a cult that grew out of our brotherhood, but it's a cult. It's no longer in fellowship with us. Don't be ashamed or afraid to say that. You're not sinning if you say that. They say that. They say they have nothing to do with us. Long ago, they've separated away from us. They're not in fellowship with us by choice. So don't be afraid to say it's a cult. Name it for what it is. Uh, well, tonight we've not preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've talked about it. We've not preached it. But I want to remind you that every time that we're together, we have an opportunity to minister to each other. Sometimes we do it out in the foyer. We give hugs and we talk. And boy, we were really going at it this morning. Couldn't close the building down. And that's great. Sometimes we need something a little more serious. We need prayer directed towards God on our behalf for particular needs. Tonight, once again, if you have the need, especially to confess our Lord Jesus,